This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Tuesday morning show for a quick programming note for you. At 10.30 this morning, my guest will be Health Minister Adrian Dix, and we'll talk about the latest COVID crackdown in Metro Vancouver. New restrictions on social gatherings, some businesses shut down, new travel advisories in the region. Lots of questions out there about these new rules. Let me know what you want to know. So hit me up on Twitter and let me know what questions are in your mind about these new rules around COVID-19 in Metro Vancouver. And I'll try to get to as many of those questions as I can when the minister is on at 10.35 a.m. Synchronize your watches for that. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix. Yeah, send me a tweet on that and let me know what you want me to ask him. At Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter. So we've got that and lots more on the show today. But first, we talk about crime in the city of Vancouver. Now, yesterday, I talked to Howard Chow, on uh, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department. We talked about the rising crime rates in many Vancouver neighborhoods. The VPT patrols 24 different neighborhoods in their pl- policing plan. He's at 16 of those neighborhoods right now experiencing increases in violent crime. I asked him yesterday, what kind of crime is on the rise? Here's what he told me. Uh, we're seeing uh, assaults, your most serious assaults, ag assaults, uh, aggravated assaults, I, sh- I should say, assault with weapons, some offensive weapons calls. We're seeing uh, street disorders, your B&Es go up in, in areas like Strathcona. Um, we're seeing in Chinatown, again, your B&Es, your arsons, your mischiefs going up. Okay, real interesting discussion there with the Deputy Chief of the VPD. And one of the things we did yesterday was we took a deep dive into the call for service list at the Vancouver Police Department. And we took a look at a, like basically a snapshot in time. It was from Friday night, and we took a look at the Vancouver Police Department call list. 57 calls on hold at one point Friday night. Went through a lot of those calls and the types of crimes that are coming in to VPD. 700 calls a day for service. That works out but a call every two minutes. Now, one of the things that we talked about on yesterday's show was the situation in Strathcona Park in East Vancouver with the largest homeless encampment in Canada. He said, yeah, there continues to be lots of problems in that neighborhood. Yesterday, the Vancouver Police Department also announced a new neighborhood response unit to deal with crime in some of these affected neighborhoods. Let's go to the Strathcona neighborhood right now and check in with Katie Lewis. She is the vice president of the Strathcona Residents Association, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hiya, Katie. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, it's nice to talk to you again, Mike. Thanks, Katie. Thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, when you hear the Vancouver Police Department talk about a new plan uh, to deal with crime in some of these affected neighborhoods Does that give you some hope that uh you're gonna get better service there from the police i i don't you know honestly like it's funny because like i don't um i'm actually like a little bit i don't know what to think at this point um mm-hmm. you know um i i think we in Strathcona realize that there is a problem that is happening here yeah um and and we know like 
you know, like I have the scar on the back of my head to prove it. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to, I actually wanted yeah. to ask you about that because I know you yeah. you've been you've been very public about that attack like somebody followed you to your home and you got hit over the head. How are you yeah. how are you doing? I'm doing okay, you know, honestly, like it's it's um I wish I was doing better, quite frankly. Um like I I have a ton of brain fog. Um I have a concussion. And I have a very serious concussion that's going to probably follow me for the next couple of years. Okay. You sound like you're struggling right now. Are, are you actually okay to do this interview with me right now? No, no. I feel, yeah. I, I feel fine, right? Okay. Like, it, it's just, um, I don't want anyone, like, I guess my point is, like, I, I, you know, like, generally, like, I'm, I'm kind of a lady that just kind of carries on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh so like to have someone beat me over the back of the head like was a bit of a new experience for me. Um yeah. you know and I like unfamiliar I would say. Um but uh you know like it it's like I I kind of like felt I was fine for a few yeah. days. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that I actually had a really serious concussion and I had to go back to the hospital. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I can, I can hear it right now and just, and just speaking to you. Um, so yeah, yeah like, it, it's funny because it's like, um, I like, I'm the lady who loves books, right? Like, mm. like I'm the lady who loves to read books. Uh, you know, like, so I didn't, like, I didn't want to basically admit this to anyone. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it sounds like you're like, you know, you're you're struggling to to recover right now. Yeah, like I yeah. like I literally like I I have real like brain fog. I can't find the right words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. and and that that's kind of where where I'm at like like and this this sucks, right? Because like in general I'm a pretty smart person. <laughs> Let me uh, let me let me ask you this. I, I hesitate to go into a, you know a heavy interview here with you right now, but um, when you were attacked on that day, I, I remember I spoke to you in the immediate aftermath of that, and you mentioned that there was a possibility of some video evidence, like someone one of your neighbors might have had a video camera, yeah, security camera. So where, the, do you know, the, yeah. the VPD have they've gotten um, video evidence from three of my neighbors. Yeah. Okay, and how, what is the status of that investigation? They haven't they haven't caught anybody. No. Okay. And then they won't. They like, you know, um, it's and and that's very disappointing to me as well. Quite okay. Frankly. Let me let me ask you one more. Let me ask you one more question. I know you've been you know you're still really active on social media, and you've you've been calling for like a provincial response to the situation with the homeless camp in, in Strathcona yeah. Park. And like, have you heard anything from the provincial government here with the plan? Well, like, I think the problem is that we've heard no plan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, Adrian Dix is on my list of people yeah. to talk to. John Horgan is on my list, too. Um, and, uh, like, I'm so disappointed in them, quite frankly. And I, I will go on public record saying so. Okay. Um, they need to do their jobs better. Okay, I hope that you, they do, you do get a response from them. I think you t continue to be a tremendous advocate for that neighborhood, and, and I want to thank you for coming on. And, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna wish you the a very speedy recovery here from this trauma you've gone through. <laughs> 
I like, and I honestly, I like, I am feeling better day by day. Um, you know, and, and I'll get there. Um, it just, it's taking a little bit longer than I would have liked. How about we say that? Okay. Okay. Katie, hang in there. I'm going to keep in touch with you. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Katie Lewis, they're vice president of the Strathcona Residents Association. And I got to be honest with you, you can tell that she's still struggling with this head injury uh, after she was attacked. Honestly, I thought that she had been on the men there, but I can tell that she's still, she's still in trouble there. So, um, I just continue. I think she's just been a tremendous advocate for that, for that neighborhood. And I continue to hope for her full recovery here from that attack. Uh, on the show yesterday, Howard Chow, just going back to Howard Chow, um, one of the things I asked him, we talked about the Strathcona Park situation, and one of the things I asked him, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department, is how many calls do they get from the Strathcona Park uh, encampment? Here's what he told me. Absolutely, we do. And not only in the park itself, but around the neighborhood. And that's where the concern is, is um, we looked at a, a three-block area surrounding Strathcona, and we, this is where we're seeing the increases in crime. So what you're hearing from the residents and people in that area is absolutely true. They are seeing a spike in crime and um, and some of the uh, impacting their sense of safety and security. Um, very predictable. Uh, we're seeing very serious crimes in there. We've had, uh, uh, you know, known very violent offenders live in the park. Um, so it's a, it's a concern. And what, what exasperate, exacerbates that is, is that when we go in there, oftentimes we're met with hostility. So that means that a, a two-person unit can't go in there. It means we're pulling members from other areas to come in to assist with the call types. Okay, this is one of the challenges for VPD with the situation in Strathcona Park, as you heard him describe there, that when the police go down there, if they get a call for service, they're not welcomed by the campers in the park. They've got to bring backup. So that is a problem for resources, deployment of resources in Vancouver for the police, because they get a lot of calls down there in that Strathcona Park encampment, and they've got to send extra officers down there to deal with it. Yesterday, after my conversation with Howard Chow, the deputy chief of the police, the Vancouver Police Department announced a new neighborhood response team uh, to deal with crime in some of these affected neighborhoods. And here's what he had to say about that. The, the team became operational one week ago on November 2nd, and they're made up of police officers and community safety personnel who have been redeployed from other areas. Their primary responsibility is to respond quickly to street disorder issues before they escalate. They're responsible for attending calls from the public, such as disturbances, suspicious circumstances, people trespassing, and mischiefs. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick programming note for you. Just taking a close look at some of the comments made yesterday by BC Premier John Horgan on his re-election with a majority government now officially confirmed by Elections BC. He's got a big majority too. So taking a close look at some of the promises that Horgan made during the election campaign. And do you remember the one with about the free money? $1,000 per family and with the money delivered by direct deposit direct to your bank account thousand bucks a family that was a big promise there from horgan on the campaign trail now remember what he said during the election that you'd have that money by christmas this would help with your christmas shopping 
Now he's kind of hedging his bets there a little bit. Will you get the thousand smackers before Christmas? So we'll give you an update on that. That's coming up with Keith Baldry at 10 o'clock. At 10.30, I got BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. We'll talk about the COVID restrictions in Metro Vancouver. Keep sending me your questions on that. A lot of confusion, a lot of questions about these COVID restrictions in Metro now. So if you've got questions, let me know what your questions are on Twitter at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. We're also keeping a close eye on what's going on in Washington with the uh, aftermath of the U.S. election. Time to check in with Reggie Cicchini now, Washington producer and correspondent for Global News in Washington. Reggie, thanks for coming on again. Good morning. Okay, so Trump uh, is tweeting up a storm here this morning and continues to refuse uh, to concede to Joe Biden. Uh, he's tweeting, looking at some of his tweets, ballot counting abuse, uh, massive ballot uh, counting abuse. We will win. We're making big progress. Uh, so a lot, he's, he's launched basically multiple court cases here to try and overturn the results. What is the status of all these? Uh, the majority of these court cases are going nowhere, uh, and they've been thrown out in at least three states. The Trump campaign doesn't have a lot of um, a lot of the, the the courts on their side right now. Uh, they have made a slight gain last week in Pennsylvania to have some of the mail-in ballots that were delivered after Election Day segregated, not counted towards the total. But I mean, even the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania has said that uh, the number is negligible and it won't do much to that forty-five thousand plus lead that Joe Biden has. So the Trump campaign is. Tr- Trying. You'll also notice Trump's tweet where he says, we will win. You know, he's right. putting a message out there that he has won and that they're going to win. OK, how much support is Trump getting on this effort in the Republican Party? Like are most are most people sticking with him? I mean, there's some prominent people have, have made some comments against him. But are, are most of the is this guy still like the strongest and most popular guy in the Republican Party and are, are, are senior Republicans daring not to go against him at this point? Well, I mean, look, President Trump does have an ability to play kingmaker within the Republican Party, uh, and you are seeing some of the most loyal members of the GOP standing with him, both Ted Cruz, both Lindsey Graham, uh, and the House Minority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you're seeing Mitch McConnell basically kind of toe an even line here, saying, look, the president has uh, all the rights in the world to exhaust the options that he has uh, at his disposal to look into a win here, but he's stopping short of saying that the president uh, you know, can just simply throw the results of the election out uh, and discount this victory by Joe Biden. Uh, there are some Republicans that are, you know, speaking out against Trump. The majority of people are simply just staying silent, understanding yeah. that there's still a race in Georgia that needs to be decided in January, and they need to be careful about the waters that they're treading. One of the things I'm wondering about Reggie is: Does Trump have any realistic hope of overturning any of these results at these state levels? I mean, could he? He talked earlier on about going to the Supreme Court of the United States in the, in this fight. He's nominated some of those Supreme Court justices. Is there any chance at all that the U.S. Supreme Court wades into this thing? Could any Republican-controlled state legislatures wade into it and overturn uh, some of the results in the election? So that's a packed question. Number one, the Supreme Court, uh, if you go back 20 years ago to Bush v. Gore, it was just a couple of hundred votes. It was one right. faithless elector and it was one state. This is several states. President Trump, in order to win this election, would have to overturn the results in a minimum of two, a maximum of four states, which is uh, a nearly impossible scenario uh, to, to right. become reality. Uh, number two, the Supreme Court is actively right now talking about the Affordable Care Act, or also known as Obamacare, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is one of the president 
president's appointees to that uh, to the high court uh, is is no longer in line, is saying that the Affordable Care Act does not need to be to be stricken. So the president doesn't really have the court on his side in one big case. But also, look, the Supreme Court, they're they're appointed for life. They don't need the president anymore. So if it makes it up there, you know, the president's campaign would need to have the ultimate case and they just don't have it yet. Okay, speaking to Reggie Cicchini, global news correspondent in Washington, D.C., with Trump kind of dragging his feet uh, and refusing to concede, I noted that I believe it was exactly four years ago today that Barack Obama uh, welcomed Trump to the White House and shook his hand and pledged his help in the transition. We haven't seen anything like that from Trump. No concession. Uh, what about the transition process? I mean, that's normally would be going on right now, right? The election's over and the transition process would be underway. But with Trump refusing to concede and unleashing his lawyers, is that affecting the transition process now? It is. Look, there's nothing in the Constitution that says a president, an outgoing president, needs to be gracious in, de- in defeat. And there's nothing that says that they have to issue a formal concession. But there is a small agency, the General Services Administration, that has to uh, um, uh, basically acknowledge that there has been a winner. And that has not happened yet. So that is what's eating into the transition. Look, President-elect Joe Biden is already operating as an essentially a shadow cabinet. Uh, he's holding, uh, you know, coronavirus task force meetings. He's going to provide an update on health care later today. He's creating uh, a transition team and moving forward to the best that he can. But the White House is holding tight uh, the millions of dollars uh, that are supposed to be allocated to this transition team. And that is going to cause problems for Joe Biden to be able to vet cabinet members and continue on with getting, uh, you know, essential updates on governmental and world affairs. Those are the things that are being chewed into right now, which this could be simply on President Trump's part, political filibustering to just wear the clock out. Right. Okay. Trump just fired his defense secretary. Why did he do that? And could there be others on the chopping block here? There are fears that there could be more, uh, notably the FBI director and uh, Gina Haspel from CIA. Uh, and what we're seeing, this is, you know, this is essentially what happened after impeachment, uh, where the president kind of started to clean house. There is a fear that we could see a purge right now where the president uh, goes after, you know, cabinet secretaries and people who are leading departments uh, who stood up against his attempts to use the agencies for political benefit. Uh, and, and that's that is the fear right now. And what that does is create shaky ground for when Joe Biden needs to step in and start governing because the president sowed chaos uh, in the final few weeks of his administration. But also what that does is put a stain on the president's legacy uh, for when the history books and when the president himself looks through the rearview mirror at the final bits uh, of his time in office. What do, you, what do you think Trump is is up to here? Like you mentioned that he potentially ends up as a powerful figure remaining in the, in the Republican Party, ends up as a kingmaker, who knows, for the next nominee for president. But could he be planning to even run again like is he setting the groundwork to seek the nom- the republican nomination again four years from now is that possible there, there's reports that the president is eyeing a 2024 run he would roughly be the same age that joe biden is now uh so it's it wouldn't put him as the oldest you know presidential candidate uh in u.s history and it would also make him a formidable candidate in the uh in the primary challenges and it would also kind of get in the way of these advisors who are looking to republicans right now saying you should be the person to lead the republican party uh in the next general this is possible. And look, in 2017, the day he was inaugurated, President Trump filed his papers to run in 2020. So, you know, it's an open question. We just have to see what the president does. Okay, I'm curious what it'll be what US Canada relations would be like under a Biden White House. Let me play this for you, Reggie. This is Justin Trudeau congratulating Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris. I want to congratulate President-elect Biden 
and Vice President-elect Harris. I'm looking forward to working with them both on the common challenges and opportunities facing our countries and our world. Okay, what will relations be like, you think, between Biden and Trudeau? I mean, look, I bet you our Ottawa crew could, could answer this uh, uh, better. But, you know, the, the, the relations between Ottawa and Washington have been strained right now. Uh, and I think with Joe Biden coming in, it, it more ideologically aligned with uh, where Canada sits on the political spectrum. I think you're going to see a mending of relationships. But look, Joe Biden, uh, he, he, energy and the environment are big to him. And that could pose problems, uh, especially in the West when it comes to, to oil pipelines. So we'll have to see how those conversations go. But Joe Biden has also been in this political game. Uh, for decades, and he knows not to just slam his fist down uh, and say no to something without having a political conversation around that. Uh, but you know, it, well, Canada-U.S. relations obviously are huge because they're the biggest trade, uh, import, and export with each other. You have to also remember Washington's relations right now are strained with dozens and dozens of countries, uh, and this is going to be a monumental task for Joe Biden to try and fix those relationships that have really been put through the blender over the last four years, uh, not just including with Ottawa, but including with countries all throughout NATO and, and, and in towards Asia, too, where President Trump has really put stress on longstanding friendships. Last question for you, Reggie. Trudeau said that he brought up the two Michaels in his conversation with President-elect Joe Biden, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, of course, the two Canadians who have been detained in China since December of 2018. Uh, they were detained just days after Canada detained Meng Wanzhou, the Chinese Huawei executive, uh, facing an extradition, possible extradition to the United States, widely seen as retaliation against Canada for doing that. Uh, is there any chance or is there any hope that a, a Biden presidency could help secure the release of the two Michaels? I mean, it's possible. Uh, yeah. Look, again, uh, you know, Ottawa would probably have the better answers to that, because I will tell you, uh, having been down here since that story has played out in Canada, it has never made headlines once uh, in the United States, with the exception of if there's a story related to Meng Wanzhou. Uh, it, it has simply just been off the radar, especially in the Trump administration. Is there a possibility here that Joe Biden could leverage a relationship with uh, Xi Jinping to be able to kind of open up a dialogue here? It is possible. Uh, it simply is going to have to be put in to kind of a cue as to what the United States sees as its most important priorities right now, uh, you know, when it comes to trying to deal with uh, what's going on across the rest of the world. Okay, the drama never ends. Reggie, thanks for taking the time. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Thank you. All right. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about those new COVID-19 rules in Metro Vancouver. New restrictions on social gatherings. Some businesses shut down. Travel advisories in place. My guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for taking the time. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. I put out a, a request on Twitter for listeners to send in their questions, and I got, you know, I got hundreds of questions here, and obviously you can't get to all of them. Let me just ask you a few. Well, well, we'll do we'll do a longer segment next time, next few days. Okay, cool. That that would be great, actually. Okay, Harry says to me on Twitter, 
Can you please ask the minister for a mandated mask policy in public locations? I know you've been asked this over and over. It keeps coming up again and again in our open lines. Why not a mandatory mask rule in B.C.? So, Dr. Henry expects, I expect, everyone who can use masks in indoor public spaces to use them. And it's the same way we expect everyone to maintain a safe distance from others, clean their hands and cough into their sleeves. We don't have mandates for these things. They're not the law, but it's our certainly our expectation. We need to use all these level layers of protection. So if anyone feels that they, uh, they don't need to wear a mask when they can in an indoor public circumstances, let me disabuse them of that. Let's wear masks. Why not make it mandatory? Well, uh, I think that all of those things we talk about are all things we need. We've had guidance, and right now, for example, we have guidance on travel. Because as a practical matter, it's challenging to mandate that and to enforce that. But that doesn't mean we don't expect the guidance on travel, the recommendations restricting travel not to be followed equally. Um, And this is true of washing your hands, which is pretty essential, I would say, in a pandemic. And wearing masks in indoor public spaces. These are things that are strong recommendations. and, uh, And Dr. Henry, I think, has been really consistent on that, as have I. Okay, so if I interpret what you said there the reason you would not bring in a mandated mandatory mask order is you're concerned about the enforcement of it correct what what we want to do is uh encourage people to do them just like those other things they're just to a degree harder to enforce but the fact that there's not a mandate doesn't mean it's not the recommendation and we're not asking people to do it we are uh and there's a whole bunch of things that are orders this week right that are significant ones that have come in from Dr. Henry. And those orders are designed to focus on the evidence around social gatherings and so on. So when you see orders like the ones we've seen, that's based on evidence. We, unlike a lot of places right now in Canada, because we, we hired a ton of contact tracers uh, starting in the summer, are uh, focus on every single case. We case manage every case. So when you see an order like you saw on Saturday, it's based on the evidence. Okay, I'm looking at the Center for Disease Control website and some of the, the details of, of these orders that have been brought in on the weekend, and one of the lines in there says, do not have play dates for your children. Jill says to me on Twitter, can I still take my kids to the park? When I go there to the park, my kids play with other kids. I sit and talk to the other moms on a park bench. Can I still do that? Well, what we're saying is uh, that gathering. So gatherings and uh, are not um, are not allowed right now and are not recommended right now. And so you ask, well, can people can I go for a walk with my children to the park? The answer is, of course, yes. Can they play in the park? Of course, the answer is yes. But a lot of the problems we've had with respect to sporting events and with respect to semi-organized events is not the running around or playing soccer itself, but parents coming together in more organized circumstances, clubhouses where people get together. And so what we're saying here is for two weeks, don't gather together. That physical distancing is important. We need to be outside more than inside. So the short answer is absolutely go to the park. Please go to the park. But no play dates, and especially no play dates inside. Okay, I got a lot of questions around sports. Uh, One hockey player says to me on Twitter, why shut down hockey in Metro Vancouver when we already had rules in place? Players are wearing masks. We got rules about entrance and egress from from arenas. 
There are limits on the number of people who can come in in the stands and, and watch a game. Why could they not continue that? I mean, has there been any, has there been any confirmed uh, spread of COVID-19 at a hockey game? The, I think what the focus of the order right now is twofold with respect to sports. One is traveling, right? So you know right. those rules are in place. You can't go outside uh, your region uh, to play games because we were seeing a bit of that, including proposals for people to come from other provinces and take part in tournaments and so on. Clearly, given the nature of transmission, that's not a good idea. The concern around sports, there's no impact on outdoor sports, right, except those limits on travel that we talked about, although we remain concerned about, as I say, what happens afterwards, what happens on the sidelines and so on. Um, With respect to indoor sports, indoor contact sports, we're saying for the next two weeks, that we shouldn't do that. So that means um, group activities such as spin classes and Zumba and those sorts of things, but also basketball and hockey, not for these two weeks. Drills, yes. Individual practice, yes. So if you're talking about basketball, for example, just to use another sport, not hockey, um, no scrimmages, no games, but you can practice shooting your free throws. Okay, speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, let me ask you about the situation in our hospitals right now. We've got, I believe it's 130 people in hospital with COVID uh, right now. We had like 22, just 22 a couple of months ago. So we're seeing a steady rise in hospitalizations. Are you concerned about the capacity for hospitals? And is it possible that elective surgeries could once again be cancelled? Well, of course, it's always possible that the, the pandemic will get worse. Right now, uh, last week, for example, we did, as we have for the last six weeks, record numbers of surgeries in our public hospitals. I'm very proud of the teams that are doing that. And as I went through in detail yesterday um, the, uh, the capacity that's available. So we're in good shape right now, but we're not happy that it's 130 people in hospitals because, first of all, all of them are in Metro Vancouver with the exception of, I think, two or three, two in the north, one in the interior. So they're focused on the Metro Vancouver region. And, uh, and it indicates uh, uh, it's not a pressure on, uh, on our capacity. We're able to handle it right now, although it puts more pressure on staff. But it's, uh, it indicates a growing severity of the pandemic here in Metro Vancouver. It's one significant measure. It's not about testing and it's not about who goes in to get tested and response to testing. It's a very tangible example. One of the right. things that we can be really proud of in BC is that we have, as you know, the lowest mortality rates of equivalent jurisdictions in North America. And we're not just the lowest by a little bit. The second-place jurisdiction has a mortality rate in that category of four times higher than us. But that's because of the excellent performances in critical care and the excellent performances in hospital and the work we've done to protect long-term care. But, hey, um, I am concerned about 130. 130, I'm more concerned than 180 and 60. And that's why we have to stop the growth of uh, transmission of COVID-19 in BC. Okay, speaking of BC's performance here during this pandemic compared to other jurisdictions, Bob says to me on Twitter, are we still at around a 2% positive rate on testing? So like when you test someone, the the number of positives is coming back around 2%. Is that correct? No, it's much higher. Okay. And yesterday, uh, I don't have uh, the numbers exactly memorized, but yesterday, I believe, in terms of who we tested uh, over those over the days of the weekend, uh, well, just you can do the math. Uh, they can do it after we had about um, uh, fifteen hundred cases over the three days, right? 
and uh, we tested about um, uh, 28,400 people. So uh, uh, that's, uh, that's a much higher, obviously, uh, rate of, po- of positivity than 2%. What are, you, what are your concerns there? Concerned. Um, we want it to be much lower. And again, yeah. it's, it's, we have very little COVID-19 in the Vancouver Island Health Authority. So you, you'll note this because uh, uh, you live in Victoria, Mike, you know yeah. that uh, uh, for, we went through four or five weeks where we were testing 1,000 a day and we have one case or two cases or no cases, right? And when you provide province-wide numbers, those are included in those numbers. So our um, test positivity is too high in Fraser Health, too high in Vancouver Coastal Health, and that's why we have to take these measures. Okay. People see other people breaking the rules. Sometimes we see gatherings. We see people throwing parties. Uh, who, what should people do if they see someone breaking the rules? Should you call the police? Who should you call? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, it's unbelievably frustrating. Like I have talked to, uh, I would say, dozens of people have expressed their uh, frustration about um, about what happened uh, on the Granville Mall or the Granville Strip uh, on Halloween, right? Because uh, all those people in BC, all the people listening to us now, they're following the rules, and it really angers them when other people don't, right? So, um, is, will enforcement happen? I guess is the question. Uh, we have surveillance from public health inspectors, from bylaw officers, from police. With respect to business, that's WorkSafe BC, right? Or, and bylaw officers. So, yes, uh, they're depending on what the concern you have, there are places uh, to go and express those concerns. But we're also going out more. I mean, WorkSafe BC announced, I think I heard it on your 1030 report, they're uh, much more significantly going out and engaging with businesses. In some cases, in terms of indoor um, Indoor groups, physical activities, uh, activities are shut down for the moment, pending new, uh, new guidance and new work together. So there's going to be, and there is, I think, significantly more enforcement. But if there are problems, obviously, if those problems are of a, of a public safety approach, we, um, we uh, talk to the police. But um, there's also ways to get in touch with public health and so on. Okay, this is a two-week order with these restrictions in place for Metro Vancouver. Given what you know now in the trajectory of the cases, how likely is it that this goes beyond two weeks? Well, we, um, we have to do everything based on the evidence. So these orders are based on evidence, particularly around social gatherings, but also, also around uh, indoor physical activity, as you know. And uh, so what we want to see um, with these orders in place is a reduction in the numbers. So we ha- we'll have to make an assessment at that time based on the evidence as to whether these orders need to change, right, either become stricter or less strict, and, uh, and or whether, uh, whether they're, they're effective. And so uh, you can't know that yet. You're going to hear case counts today, Mike, that are really reflect transmission before the order, right, and tomorrow and Thursday, and uh, and Friday, and then we'll start uh, early next week to uh, to hopefully see um, some effect of these orders. And uh, if uh, if there's no effect, and we can't speculate, but if there's no effect, we'll have to assess that situation. And if there is one, we'll have to do that. But right now, it's two weeks. It's a bite of time that people, I think, can visualize. And we need really everybody to step it up. That means no visiting other people's homes in a general sense over the next two weeks to socialize within the people who live in your house for two weeks in Metro Vancouver 
and let's try and knock down these rates of transmission. This last question for you, Minister. You've, you've mentioned frequently that you don't you don't want to go backwards here. We don't want to go back to any more lockdowns and more businesses being shut down. We want to keep schools open. You want to continue elective surgeries in our hospitals. I get lots of comments and questions about our public school system. Are, are you satisfied right now with what you're seeing with the, tra- the trajectory of this virus and that our kids are still safe in school? And do you think there should be further safety measures taken in schools, maybe a, a mandatory mask mandate in public schools? Well, in terms of outbreaks, we had um, the uh, outbreak at L'Ecole L'Ansosable in, um, in Kelowna, which was a significant thing. In general, we're not seeing transmission in schools, which shows the really extraordinary work of teachers and support workers and administrators and of the students themselves who are doing, I think, a good job. We want to keep schools open. This is an important value. It's critical for children that schools be open. So that means that, uh, and what you're seeing in schools, the events that you see in schools are uh, are, are a reflection of what we're seeing in the community. So all of us have to step up and take the steps necessary in the community now to, to break those chains of transmission so we can still have our hospitals working full capacity on everything other than COVID-19, our schools, our businesses running. This is the goal of it, uh, mm-hmm. of what we're doing, which is to do that. So okay. uh, I think schools are doing a good job. I think uh, teachers are doing a great job. And we just got uh, to keep working on this because keeping schools open is really important. Thank you for coming on today. Hey, anytime. We'll do it longer, maybe later in the week. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Vancouver cat count now. This is a study sponsored by the Stewardship Center for British Columbia. The goal is to produce a population estimate on the number of outdoor cats in Vancouver and also estimate how many birds all those cats are killing in Vancouver. It's a groundbreaking research study. It uses a network of trail cameras across Vancouver to estimate the population of outdoor cats in the city. Let's check in with the researcher on this project now, Jalen Bastos from the Stewardship Center for BC. Jalen, it's nice to have you on again. Hi, Mike. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's our pleasure. Thank you. So let's talk about your research now. And you, you use those trail cameras, right? Like people may be familiar with those trail cameras. So they're automatic cameras that will take what they're sort of motion, motions, uh, uh, triggered cameras. It will take a picture. Yeah, you can set them up for a couple different uses, but the one for this study, um, we have it set up where anytime something activates the motion sensor, it takes a series of five photographs in this one photo per second. And they operate both uh, like at night and during the day. And so they have infrared sensors when it's night, so we can still get really high quality photos, um, even if the light's rather low. Okay, how many of the cameras do you have set up around the city? Um, so we're actually going to just be uh, entering into uh, our winter phase now. So thanks to the um, Environment and Climate Change Canada um, funding that just came through, we are going to be starting our winter phase this weekend. So we're going to be deploying another 34 cameras uh, around the city. Wow. Okay. So how much? How many? Uh, how's your research going so far? What have you found out? Uh, so far, it's going pretty well. So um, the summer uh, monitoring period ended just. Uh, before October, and we were able to gather around 2 million, just under 2 million photographs. And now what we're doing is we're in the process of actually categorizing, going through, and actually analyzing those photos. Um, so it's a little bit of a lengthy process. I would say we're more than like halfway there, but uh, it's, it's 
yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a lot of photos you got to go through. Um, a lot of photos. Any surprises on the photos? Like, have you captured any images of other animals besides cats? Yes, we've actually had quite a few surprises. It's really nice because we're using this new revolutionary software. It's powered by AI, and it's called Wildlife uh, Insights. And it, it allows us to identify, share, and analyze uh, in real-time information on wildlife, both in the city and outside. And so with this project, the AI has actually gone through some of these photos and identified some species that I had missed when I had done my initial um, observations of going through the data. And so we're seeing really high densities of raccoons, of skunks, of coyotes, as well as cats in areas that you wouldn't expect them to be in. Okay, interesting. Now, those are all kind of urban animals. We're familiar with seeing those around, but are they coming back in larger numbers than you thought? Definitely larger than I thought. Um, yeah. And it's, what's nice about this study, right, is that there isn't currently um, a basis or a, a, a database for the actual densities of wildlife that we have here in Vancouver. And so we have some estimates of, you know, some populations, but it's, it's really cool that we're actually going to be able to potentially have um, a a very accurate estimate of the, uh, all the wildlife that lives here, um, although we are focusing mainly on cats with this study. Okay, so let's talk about those cats again. So I know this gets into sort of the, an eternal debate about indoor cats versus, versus outdoor cats. And I remember when I was a kid, we had an, an outdoor cat, and I guess, he, I guess he was a bit of a tomcat, I guess, and he used to go out and get in a lot of trouble. Um, and just, just thinking about it now, it was probably not the greatest idea, but man, it was such a long time ago. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes he would disappear for like a couple, few days and come back and he'd be kind of beat up. And I guess he was getting into fights with other cats and stuff. And I don't know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good deal, but how many, do you, time. yeah, yeah it, do you have any estimate? It's like, is there an estimate right now? Do you have any kind of preliminary numbers on how many outdoor cats are in the city? Uh, it's still very rough. We are looking around. Uh, we can't like release anything officially yet, but it is um, looking to be between you know fifty to a hundred thousand cats that um, occupy the city of Vancouver, and we'll definitely be able to narrow down uh, that estimate to something more accurate as we go through and analyze all of the data fully. But it is uh, quite high numbers, and even if you know. Um, one cat kills even just four birds, right? Multiply that by 50,000 or 100,000, and you're, you're starting to actually paint a picture of the, the potential impact that cats actually have for, for birds in the city of Vancouver. Okay, I guess that gets to the sort of the bottom line in your study is the, the concern is how many, how many birds, you know, birds are being taken down by these cats, right? Like, is that a big problem? Yeah, I, it, well, it's been identified. I think the study came out in 2019. Um, I believe we're, uh, it, identified that in Canada alone, bird mortality sits between 150 to 300 billion bird deaths annually um, and as a result wow. of cat predation. And so we're looking into what that actually looks like for the city of Vancouver, what that could potentially look like for British Columbia, and actually developing an understanding of what that could look like across the country, right? And that's the hope with replicating the study moving forward. But the first and foremost is, yes, one, identifying the, the impact to birds here in the city. But it's also for, primarily as well for cat owners as well. We're trying to restructure and reframe that understanding of that responsible pet ownership, right? Um, and just making sure that people are aware, especially cat owners, of the risks associated with allowing your cat to be outside unsupervised. Um, like you said, you know, with your own childhood cat, either them getting into fights with other cats at higher risk of um, 
predation from our local predators, like our coyotes. Um, they could even get into other wildlife conflicts that could transfer disease or parasites from like raccoons and skunks. So there's a plethora of dangers that exist that people maybe not necessarily are aware of because they're using the outdoors as a means of just enriching or providing like entertainment for their cats. So just right. trying to restructure that as well. Right. My guest is Jalen Bastos from the uh, Stewardship Center for BC. He's a researcher with the Vancouver Cat Count, trying to get a population estimate for outdoor cats in the city. You heard him say there are maybe between 50,000, 100,000 outdoor cats in the, in the city. Wow, that is a lot of cats. Let me play this here for you, Jalen. This is Leslie Steves. She is from the group Rome BC. It's a nonprofit that helps to reunite people with lost pets. And here's what she says about people who have outdoor cats. It's a really big question. It's a really polarized subject. Um, you know, I, I've been doing um, this, you know, animal care thing for the past eight years publicly. And um, I have to say personally, this isn't speaking for our, our organization, but personally, um, yesterday morning and this morning, um, I dealt with two deceased cats that were hit by cars. And, um, you know, I, I pop out and I scan them for a chip, check for tattoos, and then make sure that they get to the right authority. After you do that, uh, a lot of times, um, you, you start to think, boy, if I got a cat now, um, I would have an indoor cat. Yeah, okay, so she thinks that you should keep your cat, cat indoors, and I guess it is kind of a... A polarizing issue. I mean, what do you sort of pick up, Jalen, from the from the public on this? I mean, is there are the public kind of divided, or pet owners and cat owners divided on whether cats should be kept in inside? Yes, definitely. I think the issue is quite polarizing, but I think it's because. Uh, our understanding of what it means to be a responsible pet owner for cats specifically has been um, so ingrained for such a long time. And so it's really hard to shift away from that narrative, which ultimately is imported from um, like European sort of farm culture where cats traditionally were this means of, you know, pest um, management and pest control. But as they've become more, um, of our pets and we've invited them into our homes and as we've urbanized our cities that same it, 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 it just doesn't hold true and so um, what we really need to focus on is recognizing that while that that desire to provide sort of outdoor enrichment and entertainment for your cat is is a good thing and you should want to do that it's the it's the lack of supervision that comes with that and then all the dangers associated with that um, and so evidently what the better practice for most people would be is to then have an indoor cat and then focus on providing that stimulation that enrichment and that entertainment as you would for any other pet um, yeah, so I think that's okay. why it's such a polarizing issue because evidently people do really care about about, about their cats and people do really care about sure. birds. And um, yeah, we just really need to get a hold of, of how we can be um, better urban wildlife stewards um, and okay. pet owners. Okay, Jalen, last question for you. You mentioned that your research is going into a winter phase with your, your uh, trail cameras and estimating the cat population in the city of Vancouver. Are you looking, are you looking for volunteers to help? Is that correct or...? 
Um, so we are definitely looking for people who are interested. If you, if this sort of research and this type of um, science like piques your interest, please contact me either through uh, Instagram, Twitter, or my personal email, um, which is available through uh, just Google Jalen Bastos and you'll have it there. We're also looking for direct participants um, in the Vancouver sunset area. So if you live in within the sunset region of uh, Vancouver, uh, please reach out to me. We would love to set up um, a camera within that region. So. Okay, Jalen, it's fascinating research. We continue to follow it closely. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day.